Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Stuff every Christian needs to know. Now, it's not a very sophisticated name for a study series, but it is important stuff. It's basically, you know, your Christianity 101 type stuff, uh, but things that help us understand better the Christian life and how to live the Christian life. We're in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, the text this morning is probably something you're pretty familiar with. 2 Timothy chapter 3, while you're turning there, let me, let me just say, when I was very young, I remember, you know, that evangelist Billy Graham not only conducted crusades around the world, but those crusades were often broadcast on network television in prime time. So between his live preaching ministry and the broadcast ministry, Billy Graham preached to millions of people. Now, when he would preach... Time and time again, he would begin a truth statement by saying something like this. The Bible says. He said that so many times. And most people accepted that as truth. Why? Well, because, you know, on some level, people believed that it was the Word of God and that somehow it would enrich their way of living. And you know what? They're exactly right. The Bible is God's handbook for holiness to all, uh, to all humankind. Uh, and we're going to unpack that thought and what all that means here in a, in a few minutes. Before we do that, though, I want to give you a little bit of historical context for this particular uh, scripture this morning. Paul is actually imprisoned in a Roman dungeon. And he knows that his days are numbered and uh, that very soon Emperor Nero is likely to have him executed. So 2 Timothy really contains Paul's final set of instructions to his pastoral protege, Timothy. Think of it as kind of like uh, Paul's last will and testament. Now the overall message of the entire epistle is basically that although many people have fallen and will fall away because of persecution, Believers are to remain faithful in proclaiming the gospel and living rightly. I mean, to state it more more briefly, following Jesus is risky, but it is so worth it. All right, so we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 with me, where Paul writes this. He says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, and and the overall context of the letter, what Paul is really doing here is he's giving Timothy a specific reminder that while godly people will face persecution, The God-breathed holy scriptures can equip people for the life and work that God has called them to do. All right, and that really really leads us to the big idea 
behind these couple of verses. And that's very simply this, that perseverance and the faith comes from reliance upon the scriptures. Perseverance in the faith comes from reliance on the scriptures. Now, three noteworthy things that I want us to get from these two verses this morning. Three things that I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is this. Number one, the scripture is inspired. Verse 16, Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, what do we mean when we say inspired? Now, are we thinking of the Webster's Dictionary definition, which basically says uh, exhibiting a creative impulse? Well, no. There's a Greek word that Paul uses there, theopneustos, and that's a difficult one. I, I dare you to say that three times fast. <laughs> theopneustos, theopneustos, theopneustos. Okay, I didn't get my tang tangled as bad as I thought. Uh, but that word means something very, very different. So when pastors and theologians and, and, and Bible scholars speak of the Bible as being inspired, they're referring to the fact that God divinely influenced the human authors of the scriptures in such a way that what they wrote was the very word of God. In the context of the scriptures themselves, the word inspiration means God breathed. So inspiration means that the Bible truly is the word of God, and that makes the Bible unique among all other books. Now, there are a number of different views as to the extent of the inspiration of the scriptures, but even though uh, there can be no doubt that the Bible itself claims that every word in it, every part, comes from God. And that's because it originates with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God, we also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Now here's a question for you. Is it possible that only certain spots, certain parts of the Bible are inspired? I mean, you know, can we take any part of the Bible and just kind of ignore it, dismiss it, set it aside, and, and adopt the rest of the Bible as being inspired? I mean, there are some people out there who believe that only parts of the Bible are inspired, or, or maybe only the thoughts and the concepts, you know, that relate to matters of faith and religion are the inspired part. I, I jokingly like to call the idea of only certain spots in the Bible being inspired, uh, I call that Dalmatian inspiration. Uh, and no, it's, it's not theologically correct. Now, I'm going to give you one of those fancy $10 preacher words, okay? Don't throw rotten tomatoes at me, okay? The term is verbal plenary. Verbal plenary. That's actually the term that Bible scholars use, meaning that each and every word in the Bible is inspired. Now, it's not so important that you remember the term, okay? Because there's not going to be a quiz on it when you stand before God in eternity, all right? But it is important for you to get the concept 
behind the term. Because understanding it can really change the way you view the Bible. It can transform the way you live. So here's what it means. Verbal plenary inspiration means that the inspiration actually extends to the very words themselves, hence the term verbal. Okay, it, it's not restricted just to concepts or ideas. Okay, verbal plenary also means that the inspiration extends to all parts of Scripture and all subject matters of Scripture. And the word plenary, it just, it means all. Now, the idea that only parts of the Bible are inspired, man, that, that falls way short of the Bible's claims about itself. I mean, full verbal plenary inspiration is an essential characteristic of the Word of God. All of the words of the Bible are his words given to human authors. That's why Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so that verse, it helps us to understand that even though God used men with their distinctive personalities and their unique writing styles, God divinely inspired the very words that they wrote. And in fact, Jesus himself confirmed the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, now remember the law and the prophets, that's a reference to the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So in these verses, Jesus is reinforcing the accuracy of the scriptures down to the tiniest detail, the slightest punctuation mark, because it is the very word of God. Not only is the Bible the inspired word of God, but it's a practical guide for living. You know, through the reading of, of, of God's instruction manual, We've come to a, a much deeper understanding of our Creator, the plan He has for our lives. But here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we also find that there are four practical applications of Scripture that really equip us for action. All right, so not only is the Scripture inspired, but here, here's the second thing. The Scripture is profitable. For what is it profitable? Well, four specific things that Paul gives us here. And I try to remember those by alliterating them with the letter C. The first one I like to call coaching. Look at verse 16. Paul says that all Scripture is profitable for teaching. For teaching doctrine or holy convictions, as I like to, to think of them. You know, convictions are a... I would describe convictions as a strongly held set of beliefs. Now, in our case, as Christians, beliefs based on the truth of God's Word. And the Bible exists for, for teaching these beliefs, these doctrines. Now, there's going to be a lot of times in life when you meet people who have strongly held beliefs. Now, whether those beliefs, you know, be about politics or religion or about marriage or the economy or sports or any, any number of things. 
But you see, having a strong belief, a, a strong conviction, that's not enough. I mean, there's lots of people in the world who are very sincere about their beliefs. <laughs> Some of them are also sincerely wrong. And it kind of reminds me of the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, our beliefs, you know, shouldn't merely be strong, shouldn't be merely, you know, chock full of good intentions. But in order for us to have the opportunity for victory in the Christian life, they should also be based on truth, on the, the teachings and the principles, the truths found in God's Word. So in order for a Christian to grow to maturity, he must have the truths of God's Word to keep him on the right path, to keep him malleable, teachable, open to God's leading. Because, you know, when, when those truths aren't present, that's when sin begins to gain a stronghold in our hearts and lives. Well, that's why the Bible's profitable for teaching. Think of it this way. You know, in, in sports, when mistakes are made, the game can sometimes degenerate into chaos. Broken plays rarely produce positive results. Well, so it is in life. Or look at it this way. In the church bulletin, one simple typo changes the song, give us clean hands to give us clean hands. I had to wait a second to make sure y'all got that. <laughs> Think of it this way. When you choose to keep those few dollars that were really supposed to go back into uh, the petty cash, man, you're opening yourself up for all sorts of problems. Or when a married man chooses to make a female coworker his closest confidant, man, the bonds of trust in his marriage just begin to erode. You see, without the firm doctrinal uh, foundation of God's Word, error starts to sneak into our lives. Confusion reigns. We commit penalties against each other, penalties against God. We find ourselves missing out on God's reward for us. We find ourselves out of God's will and, and walking the wrong path when we let sin sneak in. So when that happens... Well, that's when we're often in need of the second thing, and that's confrontation. The scripture is profitable for coaching, but also confrontation. There in verse 16, Paul says the scripture is profitable for rebuking. Okay, that's not a word we use a whole lot, but uh, let me explain it this way. The Bible, it exists for a situation when we're forced to either give or receive a rebuke, okay? Um, a rebuke, a, a, a warning. Now, let's be honest. You know, there are times in life when we make honest mistakes. We all make mistakes. And, you know, it, it's when we willfully rebel against God that, that causes mistakes that that's the situation that, that calls for a rebuke. Or sometimes uh, your translation might say a reproof. Now, the English word for rebuke, it, it basically means a sharp disapproval. But in the biblical context, the, the word has a slightly different meaning. It does mean to scold, but it means to do that gently with kind intent. You see an example of that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. 
Paul writing to the Galatian churches says, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Years ago, legendary Miami Dolphins football coach Don Shula was talking to a reporter about a player's mistake in practice. And he said, we never let an error go unchallenged. Uncorrected errors multiply. Well, and the reporter then asked, well, isn't there benefit in overlooking one small flaw? And Shula replied, what's a small flaw? You see, Shula never stopped working the mistakes out of his team. And we as Christians should never stop trying to eliminate the errors in our lives. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we can get blinded by our own sin. And that's when we need a caring coach to point it out, a, a spiritual doctor to diagnose the illness. What happens when a Christian disregards the playbook? Ignoring the truth of God's word usually earns us a rebuke, either from God himself or from a fellow believer. I remember years ago when my dad and I were in ministry together, uh, we were scheduled to do a revival meeting in a church in southeast Oklahoma. And in the days leading up to that, I could hear my dad on the phone in the uh, next office calling a number of his pastor friends. And he was talking about the church's former pastor who had kind of left the church under some kind of controversy. And while nothing dad had to say about this particular guy was untrue, the more I heard him talk about it, the more I realized that a spirit of gossip had overtaken his conversations. And so I, I mustered up my courage. I mean, come on, who rebukes their own dad? I mustered up my courage and I go in there and say, Dad, if you don't stop talking about Brother Franklin, you're going to have to find another partner for the revival because I don't want to hear any of that. <laughs> Man, you talk about a role reversal. It's supposed to be the other way around. It's supposed to be him rebuking me, right? It's the only time in my life I ever did that with my dad. But you see, when we see other Christians in sin, we're taught to confront each other in a spirit of love and care and concern. Let's be honest, though, we're not always good with confrontation. Sadly, our nature is such that we'd, we'd often rather ridicule and criticize a brother or complain about a brother behind his back than actually confront him, you know, which would lead to restoration. Following God's Word is the most effective way to confront and to resolve problems within the church body. Now, the biblical form of the rebuke is actually found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus said here, if your brother sins against you, Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile or a tax collector to you. In other words, let him be a, like a, a pagan or a corrupt official to you. So we've seen that the scripture is profitable. It's profitable for 
for spiritual coaching, for, for godly confrontation. There's a third thing, though. It's also profitable for correction. He says in verse 16, profitable for correcting. So if confrontation points out the problem, then what is correction for? Okay, well, the, in the Greek text here, there's a word, epinorthosis. It, it, it usually means useful for improvement or for restoring to a right state. The correction restores us to a right fellowship with God and a perfect state of usefulness. Guys, when you're out on the golf course and your golf swing is off and you're slicing it off into the woods, you work to correct it, right? And then perfect it. Or for those of you who like to bake or, or, or cook, you know, what, what do you do when you just can't get that special recipe just right? In a very popular TV sitcom, one of the characters had lost the secret recipe to her grandmother's mouth-watering chocolate chip cookies. Now, her close friend, who was a, a chef by trade, thought maybe she could somehow reverse engineer the formula and recreate grandma's recipe. And so she spent days trying to recreate this recipe. I mean, batch after batch after batch, but she never could quite get it right until her friend told her that the recipe had been handed down from a French ancestor named Nestlé Toulouse. What? Wait a minute, the chef says. Nestlé Tolhouse? You mean to tell me that the recipe is from Nestlé Tollhouse? She had worked so hard to correct the problem with the recipe when ultimately all that she needed to restore the chocolate chip cookies to a state of perfection was just a word. A word from the back of a package of Nestle's chocolate chips. So confrontation points out the problem. And while we often try to work out our problems on our own, it's usually a word from God that reveals the answers that we need to correct the problem and thereby restore usefulness, our usefulness to the church. And rest assured, God's going to correct us. He's going to correct us because he chastens those whom he loves. Right over Hebrews addresses this very thing. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. He said, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is, is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, 
but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So the Bible, our, our handbook for holiness, is profitable for coaching, it's profitable for confrontation, for corrections, it's also profitable for conditioning. Paul says in verse 16 that it's profitable for training in righteousness. Now the key word there in the text, it, it basically means the act of providing guidance for responsible living, or in short, training, upbringing, instruction, so the Bible is also profitable for training in righteousness. Just like an athlete, we condition ourselves. Paul kind of talks about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Remember early on in maybe my freshman year of college, uh, there at Wayland Baptist, almost every single night, there was a, there was a group of girls in one of the dorms who were doing Jane. Now, now that's not a veiled reference to drug use. I, I mean, that's when the Jane Fonda workout was at the height of its popularity. And a lot of the Wayland girls were getting, getting together to work out, to, to do Jane. Of course, that fad wore off and you know, a few years later, it was Richard Simmons sweating to the oldies. And then uh, a few years later, it was Tybo. Tybo, man. Let's do Tybo. Um, here, here's the, I'm chasing the rabbit. Here's the point. You know, as believers, we need to be doing Jesus, not Jane. <laughs> we need to work out with him. Now, our salvation begins with repentance and justification in the eyes of God. But when Paul said that we should work out our salvation in Philippians 2.12, he's not telling us that our salvation is by works. He's telling us that it's time to put our salvation to work, to get committed, to work toward maturity and the full stature of Christ. And if we walk with the Lord for any length of time, then did you know that God... God reveals himself to us in different ways. You know, sometimes it's directly, you know, through the prompting of the, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it is through the, the wise counsel of believers that God has surrounded us with. Sometimes it's through our life circumstances that he orchestrates our lives and reveals his will to us. And there are still some rare instances when God chooses to speak through signs and, and dreams and, and visions but you see, God's most direct means of communication to us is through his word. You see, as his children, we have a direct line to a divine source of support and strength and wisdom. Wisdom that's freely given to anyone who asks. I don't know about you, but I want to take advantage of that. Daily, I want to take advantage of that privilege of his instruction, his training from the word. It's often been said that private preparation enhances public performance. Okay, so our public life will be transformed if we'll spend private time in God's word, his handbook for holiness, being instructed on how to live godly, pure, holy lives. 
Okay, so, so far in our study this morning, we've seen that number one, the scripture is inspired. Number two, we've seen the scripture is profitable. But now I want to point out a third thing there in verse 17. Number three, the servant is equipped. What's the purpose of God's training? There in verse 17, he says it. There's two words. Two words that tell us why the teaching and the rebuking and the, the correcting and the training in righteousness is so very important. So that. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, so, so that. You're thinking, so that what? The so that, the so that is the, it's the mission trip worker who spends his vacation in a dusty Mexican village pouring concrete for a new church. The so that is, is changing the oil in a single mother's car because she can't afford to pay someone to do it. The so that is the volunteer who bakes cookies and pours Kool-Aid for VBS kids. The so that is the small group teacher who labors over the Bible lesson week after week after week. The so that is the church member who donates their time at the local food pantry. The so that, it's the Christian who's homebound because of his health, yet he still serves his church through their ministry of fervent prayer and encouragement. Now I'm going to call somebody out here and I hope it won't embarrass him, but I know he's watching on the live stream. Dick Young, you know, is a longtime member of this church, faithful man of God. Every Sunday after church, I get a text from him. Just a word of encouragement. Blesses my heart. You see, even though he's homebound, his so that is a ministry of encouragement. Here's what else the so that is. The so that is having the right words to speak at the right time. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you. But here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, that Greek word for, for work, ergon, is, is the Greek word. It's, it's where we get our, our English term ergonomics, okay? Now, ergon, it, it literally means your, your business, your, your occupation, your employment. And you know what? As Christians, we ought to be about our father's ergon. We ought to be about our father's business. Because on God's team, man, there's no spectators. Nobody's riding a bench. We're all in the game. But we have to learn the playbook to be equipped for good works that are useful to the team and to the kingdom of God. God's got a plan for you, believers. He's got a plan. As long as you draw breath, God is not finished with you yet. Now, all of us who are Christians, we understand what we've been saved from. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, which is to be separated from God for all of eternity. But sometimes we have a hard time remembering what we're saved to. 
This is a very familiar passage that you know in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. But then he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved to good works. And that's a lot of what this handbook for holiness is all about. Yes, it teaches us other things. It teaches us about the nature of God. It teaches us about his redemption plan for us. But it also equips us to persevere in good works. And that's really the big idea behind these two verses. Perseverance of the faith comes from reliance on the scriptures. You see, church, Everything that we believe as Christians, everything is anchored in this book right here, the Bible. But you know what? It, it, it profits you nothing if it's sitting on your nightstand night after night, collecting dust, never opened. But when we put the Word of God into our minds and let it trickle down into our hearts and flow out into our lives, then it begins to achieve its purpose so that you may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's word to us. It's divinely inspired. And the truthfulness of the scripture, man, that's one of the foundational principles of Christianity. That's the stuff you need to know. It's Christianity 101. Everything we believe is based in this book. It's God's word. It's true. Because he's true. But what, what if, if what the Bible says is true, yes, we should take it as true, but not just with matters for living, but with matters of salvation itself. You see, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made an outstanding truth claim right there. Now, Jesus was one of three things. He was either a lunatic, just crazy out of his mind with delusions of godhood, or he was a liar, like the consummate con man, or he was who he said he was, Lord. But you see, Jesus not only died for you to purchase your pardon, to save you from the penalty of sin, but the Bible, this collection of truths from God, also tells us that he rose the third day to prove everything he said was true to prove that he really was and is Lord and because of that he is worthy of our trust today he is the one who declared I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly if you're here today and you have never committed your life to Christ I got to ask you, 
Would you like to know that abundant life today? It's right there at your fingertips. It's pretty simple. It's like A, B, C. A, we admit that we're sinners. B, we believe in our hearts that Jesus died for our sin and he was raised from the dead. And C, we confess him as our Savior and Lord. If you've never had that conversation with God, to just say, God, I know I can't save myself. I can never be good enough to earn a place on your roster in heaven. I need you, God. I need your forgiveness. I need salvation through Jesus. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? And he will. Every time. You see, that's a prayer that God will always say yes to. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.